Welcome to the second Sunday of Epiphany. As we continue our sermon series entitled Irrepressible, our gospel reading this morning uh, is not only relevant to the seasonal theme of light shining forth and people having epiphanies of their own, much like Philip and Nathaniel do in this story, but I think it's, it's beautifully aligned with what God has put on my heart for our community for this upcoming year. Uh, if you were not here last week, on some level, you're out of luck because we had technical difficulties, and so there's no evidence that we had church last week. <laughs> there is no sermon available to anybody, uh, which maybe I should be grateful for because there's no evidence of, of uh, wrongdoing. Um, but so forgive me if I'm going to recap incredibly quickly for everybody who wasn't here. And so please, if you were, be gracious and act like this is wonderful and fresh and new to you. But uh, one of the, one, I, I'm getting applause already? Is that, or somebody opening something? I'm so eager to hear something. Um, like, oh, somebody's really feeling it. I haven't said anything yet. Um, more or less, I grew up a pastor's uh, kid, and uh, one of the things that my father did, and I continued to do when I was a senior pastor, was in the last quarter of a given calendar year, he would spend time sitting with God and asking God for a verse, a verse that would provide vision, focus, encouragement, challenge for a congregation for the upcoming year. And as I got to the end of 2017, I felt very strongly impressed uh, to do that for sanctuary. And uh, the idea here is that in 2018, uh, we would be so full of the Spirit uh, that much like the apostles that we read of in the book of Acts, we would be the sort of people who cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. And that's our verse for sanctuary for 2018. It's found in the book of Acts chapter 4, verse 20. So if you use a highlighter in your Bible, stop and underline properly. Don't use a highlighter. Highlighters are not anointed or called for by God in any way. <laughs> underline with a ruler and the appropriate pen, okay, or pencil. <laughs> if you use an app, highlight it, mark it out. Acts 4.20, we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. That's our verse for this year. So to recap, basically, let me say this quickly and succinctly. This series is not. Would you please turn to your neighbor and say, it's not. Okay, but we got to try one more time. Turn to somebody else. You warmed up. Say, it's not. Thank you. This series is not a call to the worst of 20th century evangelism. In other words, we're not going to be knocking on doors this year. We're not going to be teaching you any sort of sales pitches that we'll be, uh, you know, reciting quite insincerely. What would you do if you died tonight? You're not allowed to say that if you're part of this church. And there will be no threats of hellfire given to or by anybody. And everybody said, thank God. However, the purpose of this series is an attempt to get us thinking. What is the church's responsibility, if any, for Christian witness in the world? How is it done? 
is it, uh, we were doing the Epiphany Home Blessings this week and stopped by one family and they brought up the sermon. And of course, everybody loves the quote from St. Francis, right? Preach the gospel everywhere you go and if necessary, use words. It's a little bit tongue in cheek because if anybody knew, St. Francis knew that you couldn't but talk about the gospel. It is necessary to use words. The problem I think we find is that a lot of us, we use words that are not consistent with our life. Or all we want to do is talk and think our actions don't matter, and that's deeply problematic, and I think he points that out. But this series is an attempt to get us thinking. Do we have a responsibility to live and speak in a way that is a witness to the reality of Christ? And if so, how do we do that? Are we doing that? This series is a call to examine ourselves. Like Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, we all face our own uh, uh, counsels, if you will, our own obstacles that would want to keep us silent. Are we silent because of these sorts of oppositions in our personalities, in our fears, in our social constructs? This series is an invitation for us to imagine what would be like, what, li- what would our lives be like if we were so full of the Spirit of God that like those rivers of living water Jesus describes in John 7, we couldn't contain them? What would it be like if the Spirit of God came up through us and we were free to let the Spirit be manifest through us? I think living a life of freedom and joy, even if it was socially awkward, would be pretty interesting to imagine. And the question, of course, is, To what extent does the life of the apostles inform our thinking? For those of us who come from a low church, free church, Pentecostal, Baptist kind of church background, we grew up thinking that there was clean and direct continuity between the apostles and us, right? We're arm in arm with Peter and John, like we're out there, and and we're very reluctant to give the apostles, the 12, any sort of pride of place, And part of the reason is because those of us who come from a high church, historical, sacramental, liturgical background, see huge discontinuity between the apostles and us ordinary folks. And they were set apart and incredibly special. And we're just sort of hoping we don't spend too much time in purgatory. And what I want to suggest this morning is that neither one of those perspectives is very helpful. The 12 definitely had a very special place in the kingdom of God, and I think the book of Revelation would point to that. The 12 are foundational to our faith. They hold a very important place, even for no other reason than sequence, right? They're the first. They're the first who bear the responsibility of bringing this incredible message. At the same time, if we see too much of a gap, we'll read a story like the one in Acts and say, well, that was Peter and John. That doesn't apply to me. Well, you know, that's them, and they were the apostles. But me, you know, I'm just a housewife. I'm just a salesman. I'm just a school teacher. I'm just whatever. And I want to muddy those waters up for us. And I don't want to lose our sense of honor and respect and appreciation for the work and place of the apostles in the life of the church. But neither do I want us to read a story like this and just dismiss it out of hand as something for the superheroes of the faith. 
I want us to read a story like this and say, my goodness, do I have this sort of irrepressible witness inside of me that cannot be quenched? What's important is to realize that content of the work of the apostles was not really, or even I should say primarily, philosophical sort of theological abstraction. The work of the apostles was a person. His name is Jesus. And it was the story of Jesus, the announcement, the proclamation that Jesus has been raised from the dead and he, in fact, is not only alive, he is Lord. I'm going to say that one more time so we can get more people to jump in and say amen. You'll feel good if you do. Jesus is alive and he is Lord. Boy. I'm glad that that is true. What we read in our gospel text this morning, John chapter 1, starting at verse 43, is Philip having a story. I love this 43rd verse. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. But look at these next three words. He found Philip. Can we stop for a theology break right here? Let's remind all of ourselves this morning that we didn't find God, God found us. Can we remind ourselves the words of Jesus later on in this gospel where he says, just in case you're wondering, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Can we fast forward to the Apostle Paul's work in Ephesians 2 where he says, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made you alive. We have to remember that all the good things in our lives are initiated by the grace and the essence of God, not our pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Jesus found Philip. And look what happens. Philip, in turn, finds Nathanael. Verse 43, he found Philip. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael. Can I suggest to you that found people find people? How many of you have ever sang a song? That I once was lost, but now I'm... Hello. Y'all know the words. Some of you felt the spirit when I said that. <laughs> I once was lost, but now I'm found. Sidebar, and now what? Who are we finding? Who have we found in response to being found? I love... What Philip does, and I think we can be inspired, informed, directed by what Philip does in this story, because Philip finds Nathaniel, and he does not say to Nathaniel, we have a sin problem, but I have a solution. Right? He does not say to Nathaniel, Nathaniel, the world is broken. And what your experience is the brokenness of the world. He doesn't say to Nathaniel, you might think there is no God, but I've got a story for you. He doesn't, doesn't do any of this. Listen to what he says. 
verse, if I can read this properly, 45. We have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph, Joseph from Nazareth. This is so beautiful. First of all, I think Jesus would have been amused by the fact that Philip's under the impression he found Jesus. It's really important for us to understand the heart of what Philip's getting at here. Philip has been searching for something. And he knows that Nathaniel's been searching for the very same thing along with him. And Philip has been hungry for, and I quote, him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Philip had been searching for a Messiah. He had been longing for salvation, longing for rescue. And he knew that Nathaniel was looking for the very same thing. Can I just ask a rhetorical question? Could it be that the majority of our witness falls flat because we're giving answers to questions nobody's asking? Could it be that when Jesus says, blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, this is what he's talking about. The person who's longing for salvation, for rescue, for revelation, for encounter with God, that's the person you have to find. To find somebody just because they're in front of you and insist that they listen to what you have to say may not be the most effective pathway forward. Philip is not just found. Philip has been searching. And once Philip is found by Jesus, he goes and he finds someone who's been searching for the very same thing that Philip was searching for. The language of Messiah is abstract to us because in this day and age in our culture, we don't get it the way that Philip and Nathaniel got it. But what is our version of Messiah? What is our version of rescue of the good life if life could only be this way? There's a phrase, it, it, a quote, it's not neatly attributed to anybody. Some people talk about G.K. Chesterton. Other people even go as far back as Augustine. It says this, it says, Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is knocking for God. How do we rightly perceive the knocking of the people around us? Do we dismiss them as sinners? Do we dismiss them as perverts? Do we dismiss them as Democrats or Republicans? What do we do when we see this knocking? Are we able to connect that knock with a longing for God? Because that's what we have to be able to speak to. Philip found Nathaniel and told him a story. And the story is, I met the guy. I met the guy, the one that we've both been thinking about, studying about, talking about. We found him, quote, unquote, not really, but we think we, we found him. Who's your Nathaniel? Who do we know well enough? Who in our lives have we talked with enough to know their desires and their longings, because I would suggest 
that rather than appealing to people's intellects with arguments, we should appeal to people's desires with a person. Jesus meets every desire and every longing. You may not win every argument, but you can scratch every itch. And of course, Nathaniel famously says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? There is no, I studied this this week for us, there's no consensus as to what is going on when Nathaniel says this. Augustine's commentary on this verse He says, well, he could be saying something cynical and he could be saying something positive. Well, thank you, Augustine. I appreciate the clarity you've provided in your analysis. One commentator, I I like what he said. I think it was helpful. I like the idea that there's probably not one way to understand this, right? I think when we read a, a, a verse or a text like this, My sense is, Holy Spirit, what do you want to tease out of this for us today? What facet on this diamond do you want us to look at today? And one of them was brought out by a theologian named Craig Keener, and he said it was very common in the ancient Near East, especially in Palestine at the time of this story, for there to be what he called civic rivalries. I don't know if you have those in Oklahoma, but this idea that our little town is better than your little town. So I'm Norwegian by ancestry, and Norwegians have this thing going with Swedes. So if there are any Swedes here this morning, I'll be praying for you. That's what I mean, that sort of thing. That's, I'm just, I, don't, I don't mean that if you're Swedish. I don't. I just said I'm giving you an example. If that's the sort of civic rivalry where Nathaniel may have very well been saying, Nazareth, okay. And it's not meant to be much more than a shot at a different town that's nearby. These are all small towns. Nazareth, there's not conclusive evidence to say that it was particularly faithful or particularly compromised. But it just wasn't Nathaniel's town. Civic rivalry is a deep problem in human nature. And whether it happens on a national level, level where Norwegians look at Swedes and say, it's too bad you're not like us. Whether it's New Yorkers or Californians who look at places like Oklahoma and call you a flyover state. I have a little bit of an outdoorsy streak. Not too much, so don't get carried away, but I have a tendency to to do some things that Oklahomans like to do. And they have trade shows for these sorts of things. Some of you may be aware of that, like great outdoorsman show sort of thing. They don't have them in New York, but if you travel to Pennsylvania, you can go to them. And so when I would go to these shows in Pennsylvania, inevitably the vendors would say, hey, how you doing, where are you from? And I knew what was going to happen. I was going to say New York. They were going to say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. That's a little bit of the sentiment that Nathaniel's bringing out here. Really? Sorry to hear that. 
But I wonder how many people will miss an encounter with Jesus because of those sorts of assumptions, those sorts of built-in biases. And for our generation and for our world living in America, certainly in 2018, I wonder how many people are just thinking, can anything good come out of the Christian church? Here's another one. Here's another one. The idea is that Nathaniel asked this question not so much out of civic rivalry, but Nathaniel asked this question because he's a diligent student of the Scriptures. And being a diligent student of the Scriptures, he knows that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem. And his question is not so much uh, a dig at Nazareth as much as unbelief, like shock, curiosity. How in the world could this be? The Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. And I think this this sort of plays into, again, another part of human nature where we get so certain that things will play out a certain way. We know exactly what God is going to do, when God is going to do it. We know exactly how life is supposed to play out. Certainty, in many instances, is a great obstacle to the encounter with the divine. Can I say that again? Certainty is a significant obstacle to encountering the divine. Humility is the pathway to encountering the divine. So I love learning from Philip here because Philip's very excited. He's been found. So he goes and finds Nathaniel and says, I met the guy. And Nathaniel says, I don't know if that's even possible. And his response is not to argue. His response is to invite. And maybe this is where a lot of us trip up, right? He doesn't argue prophecy with Nathaniel. What does he say? Come and see. Those three words should ring in our hearts for 2018. Come and see. This is like the woman at the well in John chapter 4 when Jesus says, let's go get your husband. And she says, well, there's a problem there. You remember this story? (laughs) And Jesus says, it's funny. Yeah, the guy you're living with is not your husband, and you've been married five times before this. And what does she do? She runs into town, and she says three powerful words, come and see. John the Baptist is in prison. He sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah? And in Matthew 11, verses 4 through 6, listen, Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense in me. You see, the synagogue leaders, they had knowledge of the Torah. They knew it intimately, thoroughly. But for Jesus' disciples, that Torah had taken on flesh and was dwelling among them. 
This was about a person embodied. This was real life. This was not abstract idea. And the Christian invitation is not so much to come and believe. It's not so much to come and agree. It's certainly not come and behave. The Christian invitation is just come and see. Come meet a man who's told me everything I've ever done. This is the great witness brought to us by a woman at a well. We've been living, some of us, under this pressure to be world-class orators or debaters or salesmen. It's no wonder that most of us just ignore this topic altogether. I'm not here this morning to say that we have to come with compelling arguments. There's a place for that. But that's not the heart of the gospel and the call to the church. Soren Kierkegaard, who's one of my favorites, on this issue, he talks so profoundly. And what he says is, our responsibility is to engage people's imagination so that we can help them, quote-unquote, discover the truth. In other words, he's saying we're only here to assist at the birth of truth. Christian witness is more like being a midwife to the work that God's already been up to in people's hearts and lives. Being born again is the product of being pregnant. And friends, it's adulterous to think that we're responsible to be the source of the pregnancy. Michael Green has written a book about evangelism in the early church, and he says something that I think is incredibly powerful and brings us back to the idea of the Spirit. He says, only God can bear adequate witness to God. Can I say that again? Only God can bear adequate witness to God. This all makes so much sense when you think about it. Jesus is about to ascend to heaven and leave this mission of witness to his church. And what does he say? Don't start it yet. He says you have to wait until you receive the Holy Spirit. Could it be that this command to wait for the indwelling of the Spirit would be so that we could be filled with rivers of living water that will bear witness through us. We should be a people possessed. This is why Mark 13, Jesus says in the 11th verse, when they bring you to trial and hand you over, everybody said, oh, <laughs> I'm glad I live in America. But think about this. In Mark 13, Jesus is saying this to his followers, and in Acts 4, this is exactly what's happened. When they bring you to trial and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you at that time, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. This can be so foreign to us. Some of us want to say nothing at all. Others of us in the past have been trained to follow a particular script. What if neither one of those is what God is 
really been all about. As much as he wants us to be so possessed, so full, so bursting at the seams with the life, the pulsating life of his spirit, rivers of life inside of us, that when we find ourselves looking at Nathaniel, we have the power, the authority to joyfully, humbly invite, come and see. I think this requires that we pay attention to our own stories. How has your life been changed because Jesus is in it? Can you tell that story quickly? Can you tell it beautifully? Can you tell it honestly? Are you moved by your own story? Does the beauty and the work and the compassion of Jesus in your own life make you want to cry? I'm not advocating emotionalism or some sort of manipulation. I'm just saying if the story is not authentically moving and true for us, why would it be moving for anybody else? What do you and I, what do we now enjoy by virtue of being in Christ? Can you describe the hope that you have, the peace that you have, the sense of belonging that you have, the purpose that you have, the strength that you have outside of yourself? New eyes to see people in the world differently. All of these things simply because Christ is your life. Do you remember how he found you? Do you remember how he much like at the tomb of Lazarus, called you forth into life? Because, friends, it is so easy to forget our own story. Not only that, it's easy to just live with that story assumed. Can I suggest that it might be helpful for us even this afternoon to just set aside 15 minutes and quietly rehearse and think and reflect on our own story? How did Jesus find you? How is your life different And can I suggest that not everybody, if not most people, don't have these dramatic, over-the-top, Nikki Cruz crossing the switchblade stories of gangsters who were drug dealers and murderers that got saved on a back alley of Manhattan. That may not be your story. But the grace of God is no less impressive in my life by the fact that he managed to preserve somebody who was born in the church. He managed to keep somebody who saw all sorts of sin that shouldn't have been there, and yet my heart didn't get hardened. Saw all sorts of hypocrisy and double standards and lying and scheming and power plays. My dad was the pastor. I saw it all. And my heart isn't hard. I'm not cynical about the church. I don't, oh, I just got to get up on Sunday. Never had that problem. Friends, if there ever was a miracle, it's as much as being rescued from drugs as being rescued from religion. Don't discount your story. Know your story. Celebrate what God has done by yourself so when you're with other people, it just comes out of you. Like the man who was born blind from birth, Some of us here are not Chris Green. Strike that. None of us here is Chris Green. (laughs) But all of us can say with this man in John 9, 
one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Friend, let that be your witness. Let that be your testimony. A friend of mine says this, and I don't know that it's original to him, but I've only heard it from him. A man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. A man with an experience or a woman, a person, there we go, with an experience is never at the mercy of a person with an argument. This blind man stood before educated lawyers of the law. And he said, I know one thing. I once was blind, but now I see. As I close, I just want to bring you to 2 Kings 7 and just read a story and leave it with you. This was the story that got in my bonnet last fall for this house, for this community. 2 Kings 7, starting at verse 3. There were four leprous men outside the city gate who said to one another, why should we sit here until we die? We should probably say that most Sunday mornings in church, right? So that's what most of us do. <laughs> if we say, I'm teasing, I'm just joking. If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city. And we shall die there. But if we sit here, we shall also die. Can we stop? There's a freedom that comes as soon as you realize you're dead. There is a freedom that comes as soon as you realize you're dead. You're free to be ridiculed, disrespected, cast aside as soon as you realize you're dead. Therefore, let us desert to the Aramean camp. Backstory. This is Samaria, northern Israel. And the Arameans have come in and laid siege to the city, cutting off supplies. People are not only dying, they're cannibalizing in the city. So they say, we don't want to go in there. They might eat us. Well, they won't because they're lepers. So they say, listen, we're just going to go to the enemy camp here, and maybe they'll spare our lives and we'll live. If they kill us, we're dead anyway. So they arose at twilight to go to the Aramean camp. But when they came to the edge of the Aramean camp, there was no one there at all. For the Lord had caused the Aramean army to hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, the king of Israel has hired the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to fight against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp just as it was, and fled for their lives. When these leprous men had come to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent, ate and drank, carried off silver, gold, and clothing, and went and hid them. Then they came back, entered another tent. They're looting. They're taking more stuff. They're loving it. And they're hiding what they're taking. Verse 9. Then they said to one another, what we are doing is wrong. This is a day of good news. 
If we are silent and wait until the morning light, we will be found guilty. Therefore, let us go and tell the king's household. Friends, we have all experienced experienced the rescue from death that Jesus has provided. I love that it highlights gold, which points to divinity. The Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God, is lined outside and within in gold. Silver, which in Scripture is often a type of redemption. If you were to buy back a slave, you would buy him back for 50 pieces of silver, redemption. Clothing, garments. We sang this morning, clothed in your righteousness alone. Clothing and garments represent the covering of God that allows us to be in right standing. If we've had a God encounter, if we've been redeemed, and if we are now the righteousness of God, friends, it is not a good thing for us to hide that. It is not a good thing for us to sit on that. This is a day of good news. These lepers had a story a story that I think all of us can relate to. I love the beauty of theology. I love the richness of church history. And I have to say that I love the experience of Christian worship and studying it and understanding it. But I pray that none of these wonderful things ever distract my focus from Christ. I can be so busy learning about him that I forget him. Of Christ, Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. In him, all things in heaven and earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross." Maybe if we were obsessed and focused and caught up and enraptured by Jesus, we'd have something that would not just scratch the itch, not just meet the desire, but would actually bring life to the dead, would bring hope to the hopeless, would bring courage to those who live in fear, those who are enslaved by the fear of death, could encounter God from God, light from light, through us. Let's pray. Father, this morning we're here because of Jesus. And Jesus, we confess that you are the greatest thing that has ever happened to us. We're lost without you. 
Lord, I ask you to forgive me. Forgive me for being distracted by good things. Forgive me for assuming you, just taking you for granted, taking your love for granted, taking your rescue for granted. God, I'm asking you to restore my first love. God, I don't want to be a man with an argument. I want to be a man with an experience. Help us. I don't know how, God, and I don't know even where to begin, but I want 2018 to be different. Different in the sense that I want to be a man more possessed, more overflowing with your life. Help us, oh God. Lord, I don't know why you've given this incredible mission to us. But I do know that without your help, it's not going to happen. I do know that all things are possible with you. And so that's why we ask this in your name.